Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Giovanni Potti, the head of research at the Securities Enforcement Empirical Database at NYU, and Peter Robau, the Wagner Fellow in Law and Business at NYU. We'll be discussing their article, SEC Regional Offices, which was recently published in the New York University Journal of Law and Business. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Peter, Giovanni, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Thank you, Andrew. I'd like to start with kind of a basic opening orienting question, which is your paper is focused on SEC regional offices. And I wonder if we could step back for a moment and discuss the SEC as an organization in general. What are the roles of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission? And how is it set up organizationally? How is it structured in order to fulfill those roles? Congress created the SEC in 1934 to perform two general functions, regulate the securities markets, they pass new rules and regulations under the securities laws, and enforce the securities laws. They investigate allegations of violations of the federal securities laws and prosecute the violators. The commission consists of five commissioners who operate from the SEC headquarters in Washington, D.C., and directly reporting to the commission are the SEC divisions. And one of these divisions is the Division of Enforcement, which was created in 1972 to consolidate the enforcement activities from the other various divisions. The Division of Enforcement is then articulated in National Specialized Unit the focus on the enforcement in specialized areas of the security laws, for example, the asset management unit or the foreign corrupt practice unit. And supporting the SEC headquarters are 11 regional offices, which report to the Division of Enforcement and are located across the country. So, for example, the Atlanta Regional Office, the Boston Regional Office, the Chicago Regional Office, and each regional office has examination and enforcement jurisdiction over a particular geographic area. For example, the New York regional office has jurisdiction in New York and in New Jersey. In addition, a regional office may be part of one or more national specialized units. For example, the Boston regional office is part of the Asset Management Unit, the Municipal Securities and Public Pension Unit, and the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act Unit, and so on. The SEC staff in the regional offices basically do most of the SEC enforcement work, which may include activities like responding to tips, complaints and referrals, opening new investigations into potential violations of the securities laws, and also initiating enforcement proceedings. So within the SEC, we've got these regional institutions, the regional offices, and oftentimes when there's some 
story involving the SEC. There's a stock photo of the SEC headquarters in Washington, D.C., but your paper's focused on a lot of the heavy lifting and enforcement, at least, that is conducted through the various regional offices. Could you talk a little bit about what prompted you to write about these perhaps somewhat understudied or under-noticed institutions within the SEC, and what research questions did you want to tackle? Our interest in the role of the SEC regional offices mainly comes from our work at the NYU Pollock Center for Law and Business, where we manage the Securities Enforcement Empirical Database, or SEED. SEED is a database created by our center in collaboration with Cornerstone Research to track and record information for SEC enforcement actions filed against public companies and their subsidiaries. And in SEED, we track different variables that we identify by reviewing SEC and course documents. And one of these variables is the SEC regional office that participated in the investigation or enforcement of cases for violations of the federal securities laws. We are able to track this variable because the names of the regional offices are mentioned in the SEC complaints and often also in the administrative summaries, in the press releases and the litigation releases. Since uh, we had data for more than 10 years uh, on ICC regional offices, we thought that looking into their role would uh, have been interesting in light of our literature that is uh, at the intersection of uh, administrative law and federalism that shows that the work of federal agencies may vary from regions uh, to regions. And so this paper, in a sense, uh, was uh, an exercise in looking at the regional office uh, variable that we track on seed and trying to understand if any of this uh, complexity that scholars are noticing when they look at the geographic composition of federal agencies was evident also in the enforcement practices of the SEC. I'd like to come back to that empirical and federalism insight in a moment, but I wonder if we could also get some background about the history of these regional offices and their relationship with the main SEC office in D.C. And has that relationship or has the role of these SEC regional offices evolved over the years? So, hi, this is Peter. And the regional offices have been a fixture of the SEC since it was originally created in 1934, as Giovanni mentioned. And the regional offices, as originally conceived, had two general purposes. There were practical reasons for why the SEC created these offices around the country. And there was also an ideological reason. So I'll describe some of the practical reasons first. So first, the SEC regional offices facilitated administration of the securities laws across a very large country by performing a monitoring function. So by uncovering information about local securities practices, institutions, markets, and frauds, these regional offices were the eyes and ears of the commission. And as the eyes and ears of the commission, SEC staff and regional offices were able to tap into sources of potential wrongdoing like advertisements in local newspapers or tips and referrals from people in the area. And these regional offices also facilitated investigations and enforcement. Investigating potential wrongdoing often requires the SEC to go on site to the alleged wrongdoing firm, interview witnesses, gather evidence. 
And the regional offices situated SEC staff in physical proximity to the targets of their investigation and enforcement activities, which made it easier for the SEC to carry out these investigations. So these are very functional reasons. However, in addition to these, there was also an ideological reason behind the regional office structure. And that is that decentralized governance was a guiding principle for the regional offices as originally conceived. The regional offices allowed the SEC staff in different regions, some flexibility and localized discretion in applying the securities laws to different parts of the country. And they enabled the SEC's enforcement program to respond to regional norms, markets, and trading practices. This decentralization was not necessarily coincidental. There is research that shows that the decentralized operations across different regions was a fairly common practice in many administrative agencies in the New Deal period. The idea being that as a political matter, if the federal government was going to expand as significantly as it did in the New Deal period, it had to be conscious of the differences across the country. And I'd refer anyone who's interested in this history to Jessica Bolden-Posen's article titled Our Regionalism. In terms of, uh, getting back to your original question, in terms of how the SEC's regional offices have evolved over time, one shift has been the amount of discretion to set enforcement strategies and priorities that the SEC in Washington, D.C. allows its staff in regional offices. And I'll give you an example and describe some of these shifts. Earlier, we noted that the SEC's oversight and policy functions reside in D.C., and its enforcement staff primarily reside in the regional offices. And as Giovanni noted, the Division of Enforcement is responsible for coordinating and overseeing all of the Commission's enforcement activities from D.C., including those at the regional offices. However, as Giovanni also noted, the Division of Enforcement was not created until 1972. Before this centralizing hub of enforcement was created, the regional offices operated across the country in a largely autonomous and, as a result, differentiated manner. And As mentioned, this was partly out of practical necessity and partly a policy decision. We have the situation where during the first four decades of the SEC's existence before the Division of Enforcement was created, the regional offices operated fairly independently. And as a result, there were significant differences in the investigation and enforcement methods used by SEC staff in the different regional offices. For example, some regional offices maintained better records than others. Different regional offices had different enforcement priorities. Some regional offices even launched their own special investigative efforts. One office, for example, went out and created a case referral partnership with the local Better Business Bureau. The only systematic empirical study that has specifically focused on the operations of the regional offices to date was produced by sociologist Susan Shapiro in the 1970s. And Shapiro spent time on site at the SEC's regional offices, and her work emphasizes how different the enforcement patterns at each regional office was and how these enforcement patterns reflected the regional markets. So for example, her data shows that the New York regional office initiated nearly 30% of all investigations. And these cases dealt mostly with matters involving securities listed on exchanges. And you compare this to, for example, the Fort Worth regional office, which was by contrast, bringing more cases dealing with oil and gas. So there's a good amount of evidence that suggests that each of these offices operated fairly distinctly, and sometimes this was a good thing. These special investigation initiatives, for example, were often tailored to local conditions and appear to have resulted in a number of prosecutions and stopped a number of frauds. But there were also problems with this approach, the main concern being that the unconstrained autonomy of the regional offices permitted uneven enforcement. And there were cases documented where SEC staff in regional offices fail to detect prods that they probably should have. 
In response to these problems, there were efforts undertaken to recalibrate the discretion SEC leadership empower regional office staff to exercise. And the creation of the Division of Enforcement in 1972 was one of these shifts and a major shift towards standardizing investigation and enforcement procedure. So following the creation of the Division of Enforcement, much more enforcement activity began to be undertaken from the SEC's headquarters in D.C. Previously, the D.C. headquarters would mostly just receive files from the regional offices. But following the creation of the Division of Enforcement, the SEC's D.C. headquarters began to take an active role in prosecuting cases. For example, before 1972, the D.C. office would initiate less than 1% of all of the SEC's investigations, and this jumped up to over 15% after the Division of Enforcement was created. More importantly, however, the Division of Enforcement also took an active role in setting enforcement strategies and procedures, as well as priorities. So you can look up a detailed training program that was published around that time, and you see very detailed training methods and enforcement practices all with the goal of standardizing enforcement methods across regional offices to ensure that fraud wasn't slipping through the cracks. So we start to see this centralizing tendency, which begins to erode the discretion of each regional office to operate autonomously. This trend continues today, and the Division of Enforcement continues to harmonize enforcement practices. For example, in 2008, the division published the SEC's enforcement manual, and it was an opportunity for the public to better understand the SEC's practices But it also illustrates how the division really works to standardize investigative enforcement practices, especially across the regional offices. I've said quite a bit here, but I'll finish just briefly with a note about a more recent development that, in one way, has reversed this trend of more centralized control over enforcement from the D.C. headquarters. So the period of the financial crisis was a politically challenging time for the SEC, which faced significant criticism concerning its failure to prosecute certain frauds, particularly the SEC was dealing with the Madoff and Stanford Ponzi schemes around that time. And the regional offices were at the center of these issues. For example, the Boston and New York offices were criticized for failing to communicate with each other during their investigation of Madoff. The Fort Worth regional office was also criticized for failing to properly investigate the Stanford scheme. And the SEC's Office of Inspector General issued two reports about these incidents, which identified issues with communication between the regional offices and knowledge about market practices. In response to this, one reform undertaken by the SEC was creating these specialized subject matter units, which Giovanni referred to earlier within the Division of Enforcement, which dealt with different market areas. And each unit is headed by a unit chief and staffed nationally by members with relevant expertise. And the goal is to bring greater expertise, sophistication, and experience to understanding complex financial products, transactions, and industry practices. And interestingly, what is that some of these units are headed by leadership out of the regional offices, which suggests that unlike the trend since the 1970s, the regional offices appear to be being granted more authority and discretion through these subject matter units. And this seemingly appears to be an intentional policy goal. The architect of this program, Robert Kazami, has emphasized a renewed regional office autonomy as well as building cartilage between the regional offices and disseminating knowledge across the regional offices. So that's a short history about how these regional offices came to be and how their purpose has shifted over time in response to market developments. 
Thank you for that history. And I think that takes us to the present. And as Giovanni mentioned at the top of the show, you have data for about 10 years of enforcement actions. I wonder if you could talk about some of the empirical insights that your paper offers from that 10 years of data that you are looking at for the paper. This is Giovanni. The predominant assumption in uh, the securities uh, law and in the finance uh, literature is that the SEC regional offices primarily investigate and enforce violations of the federal securities law in a particular geographic area. As a matter of fact, four out of the five factors that the SEC enforcement uh, manual uh, lists as factors that must be considered in determining which office uh, will participate in an investigation are geographic factors, for example, the location of the violation or the location of the wrongdoer. But then the enforcement manual lists factors that do not have a geographical connotation, such as the resources and expertise of uh, the office. So the enforcement manual distinguishes between geographic factors and non-geographic factors, such as expertise. And in our paper, we wanted to verify whether the geographic factors are still predominant in determining which regional office investigate or prosecute cases. In other words, we wanted to verify whether the presumption that DCC regional offices focus primarily on their geographic region still holds. And our data from SEED suggests that the link between regional offices and enforcement within their territorial jurisdiction is not all that clear-cut anymore. In fact, uh, despite the limitation of our sample, which uh, only covers actions against uh, public companies and their subsidiaries, it appears that in the last decade, uh, geography was not the overriding determinant of SEC regional offices' participation in the investigation or prosecution of cases for violations of the federal securities laws. And in particular, our data indicate first that SEC regional offices in the last decade significantly participate in the investigation or prosecution of cases outside of their territorial jurisdiction. And second, that many of these cases were in a particular subject area. These patterns are consistent with one of the hallmarks of the SEC post made of reorganization that Peter mentioned. There is the creation of national specialized units within the SEC division of enforcement, such as the asset management unit and the foreign corrupt practice unit. And our data suggests that the participation of SEC regional offices in the enforcement activities of the national specialized units may contribute to territorial detachment. In fact, since each specialized unit consists of personnel from different regional offices, it is likely that a case requiring a specific expertise will be handled by a regional office with that expertise, regardless of the geographic connotation of the case. And one of the most striking examples of this phenomenon is the Boston Regional Office, which is part of the Municipal Securities and Public Pensions Unit. In fact, when we looked at 32 enforcement actions in municipal securities that our database tracked and in which the Boston Regional Office participated, we found that of these 32 actions, 15 were against defendants located outside the Boston territorial jurisdiction. And so, to conclude... In the past, 
a regional office would uh, participate to, to an investigation against uh, a company outside of its uh, territorial jurisdiction only when uh, the regional office would start the investigation before any other regional office. So it was a mere accident. Today, we see that regional office participation in uh, out-of-region investigations and enforcement appear more intentional. And the work of the SEC National Specialized Units within uh, regional offices points to expertise, so to one of the non-geographic factors mentioned in the SEC Enforcement Manual, as the most likely explanation for the territorial detachment that our data show. At the top of the conversation, Giovanni, you mentioned that this paper contributes to some of the federalism and administrative law literature. Could you talk a little bit about what this paper says about federalism within the federal government, within the regions in which the government operates, and how does it intersect with those existing literatures in the admin and federalism space? Sure. This is Peter. I'll I'll hop in and raise two general points. I won't go too far in depth as we are not scholars of federalism, but are really focused on securities enforcement. But as Giovanni mentioned earlier, there is this literature developing at the intersection of administrative law and federalism that is really trying to complicate the classical understanding of federalism. That is this notion that federalism is a binary of state level governance on the one hand and the federal government on the other. And scholars writing in this space, they examine administrative agencies and identify ways in which some of their activities don't fit into the kind of classical understanding of federalism. So I'll give one example. Dave Owen, who teaches at UC Hastings, he published a study of the Army Corps of Engineers. And this study challenges a few assumptions about federalism. Looking at the Corps of Engineers, which aren't clustered in Washington, but dispersed across the country, Owen finds that the agency is actually doing work that is fairly sensitive to local conditions, work that varies from region to region, and importantly, even allows for experimentation and innovation. These aren't values that we typically attribute to a centralized federal government. And this is a more nuanced and complicated image of a federal administrative agency than we typically see. In short, there's this notion that the federal government is not a monolith. And that's, in my mind, one of the things that we are contributing to by identifying one case where this holds, except in our case, it's not on the policymaking side, but on the enforcement side. And the data of regional office enforcement that Giovanni just described supports this view. And the second point I'd make is that securities enforcement is complicated. Markets are changing. The frauds are increasingly more and more complex. And the SEC's reforms and reorganizations over time illustrate how an agency can channel flexibility and experimentation within these regional offices to keep up. And regional offices are an interesting and promising site for continuing to experiment with agency structure. What key takeaways or open questions would you like listeners to have from this paper and from this conversation? I'll answer that by just offering two questions that Giovanni and I have and we'll continue to think about going forward. One thing is that in recent years, The SEC has undertaken self-reporting initiatives to prosecute violations, and this is a kind of negotiated form of enforcement in which violators self-report, and in exchange, they typically receive a lessened penalty. And we've seen a few of these initiatives headed up by division leadership in the regional offices. For example, the 2019 Share Class Initiative, which called for investment advisors to self-report failures to disclose to their clients 
certain conflicts of interest and their impact on fees. So this initiative was coordinated with the help of the Asset Management Unit, which at the time was headed out of the Los Angeles Regional Office. And if the SEC continues to rely on these types of self-reporting initiatives as an enforcement tool, it'll be interesting to see how the regional offices contribute to shaping these initiatives. Another open question that we have will require monitoring the subject matter units going forward. Earlier, I mentioned Kazami, who was the architect of these subject matter units, always wanted them to be dynamic and changing. In different speeches, he suggests that some units might be phased out if they're no longer needed, or new units might be created. And the most recently created unit is the crypto assets and cyber unit. And this unit appears to be headed out of D.C., So it'll be interesting to trace the development of these units as a proxy for SEC enforcement priorities. And second, it'll be interesting to see how existing units change leadership across the different regional offices and whether these units, as well as any new units that are created, will continue to be headed up by leadership within the regional offices, or if we'll see a move back to leadership positions consolidating in D.C. Our guests today have been Giovanni Patti, the head of research at the Securities Enforcement Empirical Database at NYU, and Peter Robau, the Wagner Fellow in Law and Business, also at NYU. We've discussed their article, SEC Regional Offices, which was recently published in the New York University Journal of Law and Business. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Peter, Giovanni, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.